something very important. This is, this is one of the best pieces of advice I can give to anybody who's going to try to bet sports for a living. It's not about what you know, and it's not about who you know. It's about what who you know knows. Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week's guest is Stephen Diano, also known as Fats. Fats is a gambling legend, a member of the Sports Gambling Hall of Fame's Board of Directors. You can find him on Twitter at real underscore fats. We had the privilege of meeting at Bet Bash 2, or at least it was a privilege for me. Fats, I'm glad to be doing this one uh, just under the gun before Bet Bash 3. Welcome to Props and Hops. Well, thank you for having me. And um, it's always a pleasure to, uh, you know, to have these chats with the, the community and, uh, you know, get the information out there or answer the questions that people are interested in knowing. And on that note of getting information out there, in the past, you have done excellent interviews with Spanky on Be Better Betters, as well as on the Gambling with an Edge podcast. So as always, I will look to advance rather than repeat too much of those previous conversations. And at the same time, for the Props and Hops audience, if anybody is unacquainted, I would love to start with just hearing your story of your background when it comes to all of your legendary experience in the betting space. Well, I started out just being a, um, you know, just a kid that liked to follow sports. And I had a neighbor of mine uh, when I was in high school that just used to, he, he would bet and he kind of, I would visit him. I happened to be friends with him and, uh, and he was an older gentleman. He had his own business, but I would take care of the neighbor's dog and it was all friendly neighborhood. And I would be over there visiting and I would see him. He made a few bets one time and kind of explained to me what he was doing. And I thought that was interesting. And then I tried to tell him, uh, sent him a note one day. I says, could you bet like $5 on this for me? If I, and then he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that for you. Can't. You're too young. I'm not whatever. And then through high school, turns out a friend of mine from high school, his dad was a, a bookie and he could take bets for five dollars and ten dollars and back then you know you laid you bet less than twenty five dollars you laid six to five and then if you mm. got thirty dollars or higher then you could lay eleven to ten but you know you're betting six to win five you don't realize how much that can eat you up and you're having fun and you're betting and you know you win a little lose a little you always think you could do it and, and then i got the concept of middling kind of learned about that and then tried to get more an extra bookie and tried to you know middle lines and um finally might get my first like other bookie that could have different lines and so now i you know my friend's father he knows me so he'll take a bet for like 200 hours and i got this other guy with off lines that would take a bet for 200 hours and i hit my first like middle or two and then 
and the other guy didn't want to pay me. And I was like, oh, well, that's a problem. Didn't, didn't see that coming. So I argued with that guy and uh, eventually like, was some guy worked at a deli or something. Well, I was, I didn't care. I, just, I went over to the deli. I said, look, you owe me the money. You're going to pay me right there in the deli made a scene. I eventually got paid, but I learned that lesson early. You got to be careful who you're, who you're dealing with. And um, anyway, as time went on, I stayed involved with the betting and, then I got this great idea to, you know what? This is after I graduated from college and I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to Vegas. I had been to Vegas for a weekend over the 4th of July on a baseball trip and, uh, or over the all-star break. And, uh, I decided I found out, oh, the, have the lines come out early there and, oh, you could get differences of lines. So my goal was to go out there for basketball season and make a living middling games between betting in Vegas where I knew I'd get paid and betting with bookies I knew back home. And this ill-conceived plan was would have been, had I followed through it, it would have been a disaster. And who knows, I could be waiting tables at McDonald's or something or right now if I had followed through with that. But when I went out there, I happened to know somebody who was betting uh, betting for somebody else. And instead of doing my own thing, I just started betting for them and took a salary. It was nickel a week back then. And you just go in casinos kind of as a runner. And I did that. And then the guy I was part of the group I was working for after a couple of months, I matriculated right up to the top of the list. I was the top guy in the group. And then, so I took over and then I eventually was running that whole crew um, which was basically guys from out of Philly, but the was, we were betting for a guy out of Philly, and I was controlling the Vegas runners, which was just a couple of us, and then I just kind of built it into a career from there. It's the short version. And I think a big step in that career is eventually crossing paths with the legendary Billy Walters almost unanimously considered the best better of all time, a first ballot inductee into the Sports Gambling Hall of Fame. How did you first come across Billy, and what was it like working with him? Well, what happened there with Billy was the at the time I was running the crew, the gambling, the Billy Walters uh, trial for gambling was coming on, I believe it was 19... 92 and this was a big trial because they were being they weren't being charged with bookmaking they were being charged with betting with they were being charged with basically what we were doing with with being runners and betting and betting as an organized group but just betting and so it was the guy that i worked for it was i mean this was a landmark thing because if billy lost this case then we were, figured we were probably going to be out of business so I went to the, I was assigned to shut what we're doing down and be in that courthouse every day for every minute of that trial, take notes and follow what's going on. Well, I sat in the front row every day directly behind Billy Walters and his wife and um, was there every day. I took copious notes um, and, uh, and then, you know, on breaks and stuff like that, I 
got to meet Billy and, um, and then after the trial and they had won, then I introduced him to my, the guy I worked for and they eventually worked out a deal and we did stuff with them. And then eventually when I moved on from my guy, I worked for Billy for a year. And then after I worked for Billy for a year, then I went on, on my own. And, to the uh, extent that you can speak to this, what kind of work did you do over the course of that year when you were directly involved with Billy Walters's operation? I basically, I just was just like another mover for him, but I was kind of higher up on the food chain because I was getting a call directly from him as opposed to, you know, one or two links down the chain. And I had my own group of outs, but I would bet for him and then I would get a percentage you know, a percentage of those guys. And then I would have outs that were his outs that I would also call for him. And those, he had a hundred percent of those. And I would, you know, keep track of all that paperwork and, and, and all that. I didn't, I didn't, I had no involvement with any of his runners that he had uh, in Vegas. He kept, he had another crew that was doing that and didn't involve me in that. I just was kind of, you know, the mover that he would call me for stuff that, Maybe he didn't want the whole group to have or, or stuff like that. And what led you from ultimately working with Billy to then also linking up at a certain point with our mutual friend Spanky? Well, linking up with Spanky really didn't have anything to do with Billy. I mean, I was done with Billy for um, for a while. And, uh, I had gone when I, when I finished with Billy, when I, I worked for him for one year and then just told Billy, I was going to go on my own and not come back to work for him. And, um, so I was on my own as basically, you know, a startup and I wasn't playing big, but what I did do was one of the things I did was all the people that I worked with, other groups, other people, other sharps and stuff like that. I tried to work with them because the more information, the better. But so, for example, let's say I sent a guy into a casino and um, there's a game that was a football game that was eight. And the general consensus line was seven. And I really only wanted to bet two dimes on it. But it was good for five dimes. Well, all my training over the years, I couldn't just let let them bet two dimes and let them move the line. I had to bet the five dimes. It's just, I couldn't just let it sit there or let it not be bet. So just I was almost on the principle of leaving that value on the table, basically. Yeah. I couldn't just leave it out there. So what I would do was, even though I didn't want to put that much at risk and I would bet the five dimes, I'd take my two. And then I would call around the various people I know. And I'd say, Hey, I got an extra nickel on plus eight on so-and-so. Could you use it? And they'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I could use it and, and, and call another. So I could give out like six nickels to six sharp guys. And they're thrilled at that. Now I got six guys that love me to death. They're happy to happy to help and share their information when they have something. Or if I'm stuck on something, maybe they'll help me out. So I would have just overbet when I knew it was, it was good. I would just, overbet it and give away the extra and uh and just kind of do that to just build contacts and rapport and stuff like that and then i um 
so then I built myself up over over the years and got to the point where then I was doing very successful. And um, the way I met Spanky was I didn't know him directly. I knew he was out there, but I didn't know him directly. Um, and there was a a couple guys that worked for me that were moonlighting for him as well. And I happened to catch them, which I wouldn't have had a problem with if I knew they were doing it, but they would, they didn't tell me. And the, the issue being that, let's say, you know, the guy's holding a hundred thousand of my money and he's got a hundred thousand of Spanky's money. And now something happens and a hundred thousand dollars gets confiscated. Well, who's hundred thousand is, is it mine? Is it Spanky's? You know, so if you're put, if you're going to be doing something and holding that money, you have to have the disclosure between the two, the two groups, so that at least we know that that situation is out there. So what happened was, one day it was when there was um, the the Mirage was putting up the preseason lines for a given week, and I had my two guys over at the at the mirage because that was the next place that was going up and um the line comes out and it was uh plus i think plus four and i told him take we had we had these beepers where you would just type in the play and it would come over alphanumerically and i said so i sent out plus four on the beeper but we missed it and I knew we missed it. And then the line moved to three and a half. So I decided, all right, let's take, let's take the three and a half. And before I could type out or just the three and a half, the game moved from three and a half to three, but I sent out plus three and a half anyway on the beeper, even though I knew it was gone when I sent it. Figuring, I was when the runner called in. I was just going to break his balls and tell him he's too slow. And come on, that was there. You should have had it. You know, the whole keeping the guys, you know, energized. Well, anyway, at the end of the when he's calling his stuff in, at the end he turns in three dimes plus three and a half. I said, "You got the three. You got three dimes plus three and a half." He said, "Yeah." I said, "Really." He said, yeah. I said, how'd you get that? He says, well, you, you send it over to Beeper and I got it. And I said, well, it's interesting. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I called him back and I said, look, I got to ask you a question. And if you give me an honest answer, you're not going to get in trouble. If you lie to me, then we might, we're going to have a problem. And he says, What's the question? I said, who did you take the plus three and a half for? He says, what do you mean? I took the plus three and a half for you. You said, take plus three and a half. I took plus three and a half. I said, all right, tell you what, I'm going to give you another chance. And I asked him again. <laughs> I says, who did you take the plus three and a half for? This your second. And he goes with the same story. I says, I'm going to give you one more chance, and this is your last chance. If you don't tell me the truth, we're going to have a problem. And he says, 
no. I says, all right. So he says, no, he better for me. And I said, all right, look at your beeper. And he says, okay. I said, read me the, um, the, what the beeper says on the plate. It says, take so-and-so plus three and a half. And I said, what's the timestamp on that beeper? And it was like 325 or something like that. I said, okay, now pull out your ticket. What's the timestamp on your ticket? And the timestamp was like 322. I said, so you're telling me I sent you to play at 325 and you went back in time three minutes to bet it? And that was that was how I busted him. And uh, I said, because if you could do that all the time, if you can travel back in time to make to do you could do that consistently. I says, then then I can look past this. But if not, I can't. So anyway, as it turned out, they were, you know, moonlighting for Spanky. And he he thought he had already bet the one bet for Spanky, and he'd bet the second time for Spanky, but he decided, well, to be fair, he'd give me one bet, which and he all he had to do was say that. And he didn't say that. Mm-hmm. So I cashed the guy out that night and I let him go and um yeah, we to this day we joke about it now, and and we're all we're all friends and everything like that. But it was uh, so that was my first experience knowing of Spanky, but I wasn't doing anything with him. And then a few months or somewhere down the line, maybe a year later, somebody said, "Hey, I know a guy you should you might want to be able to do something with," and they connected me with Spanky, and I get on the phone with him, and we talk and. So man, maybe we work something out. And of course, I started talking to Spanky one month before they started wiretapping. So when is this uh, roughly? That got me dragged into that whole mess. Is but this like early mid aughts? We're talking. What's that? What's the time frame for this? When you start working with this Spanky was, about a month? This was in about. I guess that was two thousand twelve. October 2012. So I maybe I started working or talking to him that August, right before football season. And then they started in September wiretapping him or something mm-hmm. like that. And then uh, then they they arrived, they came in with the raids following October, uh, at the end of October. So Let's dig into that a bit more, if we may, because I know one part of this conversation that we'll touch on is how uh, across much of gambling Twitter and for reasons the audience, I think, will clearly be able to tell based on your legendary stories. Um, you, you're you figuratively a watchdog of sorts when it comes to gambling Twitter, but it was a literal watchdog that might have thrown you a chance at a silver lining for an otherwise pretty dark moment shortly after you started working with Spanky. The you're talking about the raid, yeah. The uh, yeah, we had a a bull mastiff, which was which had a real mean bark, but he was a, a sweetheart of a dog. And when the police were coming in for the raid, they banged on the door, and the dog was barking. And I was upstairs in the bedroom, and the my wife went down, and they 
they gave her time to lock the dog up because they didn't want to hurt the dog or, or shoot the dog. Now I had a lot of money and tickets and, you know, uncashed and chips and tickets that were in action for the weekend. So everything was in, um, you know, uh, tickets that were bet. And, uh, so I wanted to hide that obviously, but I only had like a minute before they were going to come in and come upstairs. And I had to try to pick a spot cause I knew they were going to search the house and, Luckily enough, I picked a spot and I hid the majority of it in a spot that by a miracle they did not find. And um, they, but I left behind, you know, uh, like 5000 in cash and uh, a couple of chips and some future tickets that were like, I think one of them was the Washington Redskins. I think that was the RG3 year. And I had the Redskins for 1000 to win 100000 to win the Super Bowl or something. So, I mean, they looked at that ticket and they thought, "Oh, that's that's like a hunt." They found a hunt. They thought they found like a hundred thousand dollars, but mm-hmm. of course, Washington didn't win, so they found nothing. So um, anyway, that that was basically. They still searched the room, but they didn't search it. I think as heavily as they want because they found the one what I left them, and. Uh, Save me because it would have been a, a lot of money that uh, I would have had to pay back to different people. Because at the time I had deals with four or five different people. And uh, so other than whatever my money I had that was involved with Spanky, I had money that was other people's money too that I was responsible for. And because this didn't stem from anything they did, it was from the Spanky thing. I didn't. I wasn't going to tell any of those people that. Um, well, you know, they raided me and they took your money because it was through no fault of theirs. So all those other people who, because they still confiscated a lot of money, ended up getting a lot of money from me between uh, on uh, accounts and the casinos and stuff like that. But all the people that I owed money to or whose money I was holding that had nothing to do with Spanky, I made it a point to get them all paid back now. I paid most of them as much as I could at the time, and then over over the next year or two, I got everybody squared away and, had, you know, paid them back because it wasn't their fault, where, you know, a lot of people might have just walked away from that, but I didn't think that was right to do that because they they didn't bargain for that, so... I can only imagine the pressure in a moment like that, not just the amount of money involved, the relationships involved, but also the time pressure. I mean, we're talking about, I'd imagine this is around dawn, like first thing in the morning, basically being woken up. And thanks to the need to put the dog in a safe spot, you've got, what, a minute or so? What do you recall about really coming to and making the most of that time and eventually finding a hiding spot for what you really wanted to protect? Well, the, the hiding spot was, uh, really, it was like a, what I would think would be, um, search warrant 101, where to look for it. And yet they didn't find it. I basically, it was, it was a, a, a trash bag with trash. And then, 
I kind of lifted up the trash bag. It was underneath the trash bag. And so just sitting on this. So if they looked in the trash and didn't pull the whole trash bag out of the thing, they didn't say it. I mean, that was... I thought about putting it in the trash, and then I had this thought, I'll be in jail, and my wife will take the trash out. So mm. I didn't do that. And then the, what the trash happens bag also there? was it, it was a um, I had some from a previous surgery, so I had some wounds that were regularly being treated. So it was kind of medical waste in that trash bag. So it was kind of like a mesh, um, like hamper with a with a had biohazard trash bag in it, and so I put it underneath that biohazard trash bag, and I guess. Combined with the fact that it, you know, said biohazard, they just didn't want to go near it. So mm, I left so... out. The funny, what I hear the funny part was that when they got a receipt of what was taken, my wife and the rest of my family, they knew that they didn't get everything. There had to be more. So for the three or four days that, let's say, I think it was three days or two and a half days, I was in jail. After, you know, they'd searched the house and left, my wife and my stepsons ripped the house apart further trying to figure out where I put everything. And they didn't find it either. So I, I, found, I found that to be kind of humorous. So you're basically in jail for just a matter of two or three days, it sounds like. And then it is one of your first moves once you get back home to just go ahead and make sure that everything is still... Where you hit it home and see if it was still there, and was so happy to find that it was. And then, you know, and then I had to go get the scores, but I didn't have any computers. I had to go out and buy computers, get the scores, so I could, you know, get back online and and then uh, check the scores and figure out the paperwork and see what I had uh, had left. So, over the past decade plus, I know the stigma has changed so much around betting and i would love to hear more from you on, on what any actual charges were and i'd imagine some of them were off base because we're having this conversation today and you weren't put away for too long of a time i'm sure even two or three days probably seemed like an eternity in some ways but um what what was that experience like for you even just a couple of days having to go through that and that and then what was the ultimate resolution of the this scenario that led to the raid in the first place and, well, and getting everything cleared up you, from there. When I was in jail for the couple of days that I was in jail, my biggest concern was if I was going to get out of jail in time to swap out my kicker on my fantasy football team, because <laughs> I, my kicker was on by that week. And uh, I did manage to get that done. So I got out in time for that, which was important. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something that was, um, and this is a shout out to a good friend of mine and another legend, uh, a true, a real true legend. Um, you may have heard the name Tiger. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I, what happened was they arrested us on a, what day was it? A Wednesday or a Thursday, I guess. But whatever it was that, the next day, Friday, was a holiday in Nevada called Nevada Day. So everything was closed on that Friday. So the first day that 
deals were made where if we all we could post bail if we all um agreed to we could post bail in nevada if we agreed to show up in new york and post bail in new york and then when we post the bail in new york we would get our nevada bail money back so they made bail one hundred fifty thousand dollars so my parents wired the money to the lawyer to get the hundred fifty thousand to me but friday was a holiday and the banks were closed so the she wired the, my mother wired the hundred fifty thousand on thursday but there was nothing it, it wasn't we, they weren't getting it till monday i was going to be stuck there all weekend tiger starting a kicker on a bye week tiger who was in philadelphia um got wind of this uh, i think i called him and talked to him but anyway what he did was on that friday he got the 150 got a check for the 150,000 stuck a guy on a plane to come to vegas to post my bail friday night so i could get out on saturday mm. now i don't know how many people would do something like that for somebody that that's that was just over and above and uh, just a shows what what kind of a a guy tiger is so I, shout out to tiger and thanks again for for that so i got out that weekend um and then it was a matter of going back and forth with to new york a couple times to appear and this and that and the other thing but i really hadn't done anything wrong i didn't have any um what do you call it the, nothing i did was they i mean they showed me wiretaps they showed me this they showed me that and everything they showed me i talked to my lawyers and i said well so what's wrong with that why can't you do that why can't you do that and my lawyers i could, couldn't find an explanation for what i'd done wrong so and then what the prosecution wanted was well they want me to make it they want me to come in and they want me to be a witness for them like against spanky or something like that they're trying to make that those deals and i said to my lawyer i said tell tell you what tell them i'll come in i'll sit down with them and i'll tell them i'm not going to make a deal to become a witness but i'll tell them whatever they want to know about spanky whatever you want to know i'll tell you i'll answer all your questions truthfully because i have no spanky was just betting spanky wasn't doing any bookmaking he was just betting betting on a large scale but he was just betting so there was nothing he was doing that was any different than really what I was doing. So there's nothing he was doing wrong. So is that the yeah, issue? Or are they, are the charges about bookmaking and that's where the, the lack of clarity was. Yeah. What they, they, they were trying to say that, you know, Spanky would get like Spanky would have betting partners that would. Um, so let's say, let's say you have five guys that you bet with, you can bet with. So you give Spanky those five accounts and then he'll bet them. And then, you'll take a percentage and they'll take a percentage of, of that. Okay. So what they were saying was that there were some bookmakers who were actual bookmakers who gave Spanky accounts to bet with other bookmakers. And so Spanky was betting partners with those bookmakers, but only in a betting sense. He wasn't, he had nothing to do 
with anything that they were booking. He wasn't booking them. They weren't booking mm -hmm. him. And they tried to make the stretch that that was bookmaking, which it obviously mm. wasn't. And they really never could grasp the concept. So I went in to the district attorney's office and I'm having this meeting and they got the all the prosecutors there and they got the, the detectives there and we're all sitting in a kind of thing. And I, and I said, look, I don't want to deal. I'll be happy to testify and tell you whatever you want to know, go to court, tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and answer any of your questions you want. And the district attorney for New York said to me, well, we can't put you on the stand unless you under, unless you understand what the truth really is. In other words, they wanted me to tell what they thought the truth was. And if I'm if I was gonna not gonna contra if the, my truth was gonna contradict what they wanted the truth to be, then they couldn't use me as a witness. So they didn't want to do that. And I just held out and held out and held out. And I refused to settle unless they um, they had to give me a statement. And I'm the only defendant that got this. I got a letter of apology from the district attorney's office for referring to me as a bookmaker in their press release and stating that the charges were dismissed against me. And that the um, and at no time during their investigation did was I a bookmaker or found to be doing a bookmaker. And I'm a professional gambler, and everything uh, as far as they could tell during their investigation was done as a professional gambler, and I should be able to continue and on my merry way. And uh, the charge of, but I did have to take a plea. Now, what the plea was that they, that I, cause I wasn't going to take a plea to something that I didn't do. So they gave me a plea for six degree misdemeanor. And basically what the plea was that I had to allocute that at some point during the course of their investigation, I committed some crime unspecified and to my recollection that crime was i believe at some point during their entire investigation i did go over the speed limit once so <laughs> just once that would be pretty good for the average person so that was basically what i took a plea to Wow. And are you the only one you said who got a letter like that? Um, because was that something that you sought out just to make sure that things were as clear as possible for you to move forward coming out of this? Or were there any other circumstances that led well, to you, know, it's you funny. being the only one? I'm, I was banned from some of the casinos after that. And even though I had that letter, they didn't care. The mere fact that I was affiliated with the case, they still kind of blackballed me in a few casinos. And, um, so it was what it was. Um, but then there were others that, you know, didn't bother me. And then, you know, there were some that just, they, they didn't care. They, you know, they have their compliance departments and you couldn't talk to them no matter what you said. But I had that letter, um, 
you want to get your copy, I'll send you a copy of it so you can see what it looks like. It's really quite a gem. I think actually, if you search my Twitter feed, I believe I tweeted it out at some point in response to something a nut job was saying about my case or something like that. And I sent it out. So, yeah, I might have to check that out shortly after this uh, on Twitter at real underscore fats and just look at uh, any any media that you've posted. It should be there for all to see. So that that sounds like quite the compelling read. And I'm glad that you were able to clear the coast and carry on with everything because uh, Fats, well, that is such a legendary story. And I've got to say, you're making this easy for me. I, I can just ask a, a 10 second question and let you go. And this is so captivating. I, I do want to make sure to guide the conversation to the extent that it's necessary. And I feel like a natural evolution of everything that you've been through has put you in a role where you have some unparalleled authority when it comes to accountability. I think of the gambling Twitter space and, and being more of that figurative watchdog, as I said earlier. Um, how do you look to tie in your experience, your perspective on things and, and making sure that to the extent that you can make a difference in a place like gambling Twitter, which can be great in some ways, can be a total cesspool in other ways, uh, just trying to bring as much accountability as you possibly can individually. Well, the main thing when I first, first of all, until I had done my original interview with Spanky on his Be Better Better podcast, I wasn't even on Twitter. Didn't understand it, didn't like it, didn't want anything to do with it. And then after I did the interview, I went on to um, Twitter to access the, the podcast. And then I said, all right, let's get a Twitter account. And then I got one and, you know, tweet here and a tweet there. And next thing you know, you become a Twitter addict. Um, so uh, shortly after that, um, there was a, a, I, a friend of mine, Seal, who's another legendary handicapper um, from the Philadelphia area, who was the handicapper that worked with us for many, many years as our crew. We were, we were usually referred to as the, the Philly crew. And he had gone out to lunch with... Um, I think guys Piggy forty two hundred something, uh, which is Neil, who uh, was all was the original guy that was out there running the operation when I first went out there, and those two are buddies, and they went out to lunch, and he posted a picture from lunch, and I retweeted the picture, and I said, commented that this that's the legendary seal, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody said something about, oh, really? I, so that's what he looks like. I subscribed to his pics at Philly Godfather. And I was like, <laughs> the seal on Philly Godfather is not the real seal. That is the fake seal. And what the Philly Godfather did was he was a guy who back in, in the early days was like a third level mover for the Philly crew. So like, let's say Billy would call the office with a play. Then, you know, we had our main group in the office and then they would like 
call two guys and then they would call two guys. And he was somewhere down the lane chain, at least at best the second call, maybe third call after we got the initial call. So, so he knew a lot about our workings, but he was never in the inner circle, but he knew the various names and stuff like that. So Twitter persona um, uh, hit Twitter. He created this persona called the Philly Godfather, and he referred to the our Philly crew as the animals um, because a lot of people had uh, animal names: seal, rooster, tiger, etc. Now, the animals was a nickname that was used to refer to the group, but it had absolutely nothing to do. This is how dumb the Philly Godfather is. Had nothing, and I'm not going to reveal till uh, the reason, but it had nothing to do with the um, fact that they all had animal nicknames. That's not the reason why they were called the animals. They were called the animals for a totally different reason. And I know that because I was the one that coined the phrase, the animals. And so it had nothing to do with with that, but he called them the animals and said, this is the group. And he, he acted like he was uh, the main guy in that group. And and then what he did was he created a persona for Tiger and a persona for Seal and, and various other people and sells picks under their names, but has bios of the real Seal and of the real Tiger as if that's who they are. And he's basically trying to monetize on the history of our um, our group. And to me, be, having been an inner part of that inner circle, I find that extremely offensive. And and it's inaccurate. Plus, the guy, he's just a, all he is is just a, a Twitter marketer. He's not, not really a handicapper. I mean, the way he gets his picks, and he may do well from time to time, but the way he gets his picks by knowing various agents uh, that have access to accounts of maybe some sharp people. And he just goes through those accounts and he picks off plays that they've made for the day and then releases them as his own plays under his various handicappers, which he's got a list of maybe eight handicappers that, uh, that he uh, has under his um, wing. So, that's kind of how he does it. And then he has stats and he, all his stats. If you, another thing, if you question anything he does, then he just blocks you. So anyway, I made the comment about that seal story. And uh, immediately he started attacking me back. And he went, like, I would have just left it at that, but he attacked me back. And and then he got my personal cell number and was troll texting me for like like every day, like just saying outrageous stuff. And he's calling my wife a prostitute. And I mean, all kinds of just totally outland, calling me a deadbeat, saying I owe people money and just all kinds of ridiculous stuff. So I went on the attack on him on Twitter and I just kept taking it to him on Twitter now. I was blocked, so, but I would still tweet about him every day. I would see what he tweeted, and then I would go and 
comment about it on Twitter and let people know, you know, what this guy was all about. And I would give all kinds of, like, I would take his stats and just mathematically destroy him. Like, he had, my favorite example was, he had a stat, and I think it was in the year 2018 or 2019. It was the, the football season, I think, right before the pandemic. And he had stats that a hundred dollar better would have been up, would have won like nineteen thousand dollars that year betting college and pro football off of his selections. Well, if you if you do the math, let's say you give him credit for picking fifty-five percent. And then you do the math and figure out what his record had to be to win $19,000 at $100 a game. It came out to about 30, a total of 3,300 plays altogether. Well, I don't know if you ever added up how many plays there are, how many games there are in an entire college football and pro season, but counting playoffs, <clears throat> there's only about 1,100 games. So in order for that stat to be correct, he would have had to release three selections in every single game that was played in order to be able to have a record that generated $19,000 in um, at $100 a game. So stuff like that. I just would mathematically torch all this stuff. Everything he said, I every time he might tweet something and then tweet something contradictory, I catch it, promote it, and I did this for like for like three months for, for until he finally stopped. Um, I mean, he he was his text. He finally um, went and started. He went through the great. He kept telling me like. He liked the negative publicity because he said negative publicity is publicity and it's good for him. And I said, well, good then. I'm glad I can help you. And I kept pounding at him. And eventually he he got to somebody that he, he went to several people to try and get them to get me to back off. And I wouldn't do it unless he you know, gave me an, an apology for the things that he said about me on Twitter which he never did. And um, he also, uh, I spoke with somebody else that had he had talked to at Bet Bash last year. And he told me that he talked to the Philly Godfather about what I, what I was doing, what I put him through. And he said, he described you with one word. And the word he used was relentless. So I was kind of proud of that because it was kind of showed me I, I did make my mark on him and uh, definitely bothered him and got to him. And he doesn't bother me anymore. And, uh, you know, if something comes up about him, I'll tweet, but I don't actively seek to attack him now. All the information I put it out there and it's out there. If something new comes up and gets brought to my attention, I'll address it as I would with anything else I see out there. If somebody puts up something that's 
that's false or misleading, I'll try to uh, attack that as well, or you know, straighten it, straighten it out, and or start a discussion. Relentless seems like a good word to sum that up because I was thinking of the term all-consuming and how this must be, from your perspective, I think it's it's coming from a place of having very qualified experience to do what you're trying to do in setting the record straight and help as many people as possible. And at the same time, you mentioned when you first started using Twitter, I think you mentioned the word addicted or, or addiction at some point early on and being involved in this kind of stuff every single day. And on one hand, I mean, what what a, a, a noble effort to fight the good fight. And on the other hand, like, where do you draw the line between trying to fight the good fight and at the same time making sure that it's not becoming too all-consuming for the rest of your life and perhaps fueling the fire just by adding oxygen to something that at times may not deserve it. Well, one of the other fights that I'm trying to fight, and I just do this on a, um, you know, when I see a tweet basis for the most part, but I'm constantly going after American Gaming and Bill Miller and, uh, DraftKings and MGM and, and some of these other sites because they, you know, they advertise like, you know, MGM, for example, they have a, an ad that says with, uh, they have Jamie Foxx and he's like, you know, bet with MGM sports, bet with a winner, win like a king. If you, you even remain, if you win like a, a commoner, that MGM will limit you to $10 bets or $20 bets. They tell you, all these places tell you, come here to win. But if you actually win, and they say, nah, well, we don't want you to bet then. Uh, basically, they, you know, they limit you to the point where it's too much trouble to try and make a bet. Um, and then the other thing that they do is then they, they have these campaigns where they say, you know, they talk about, and this is what the American gaming does. They talk about all the work they do to promote responsible gaming, but they don't promote responsible gaming. They, they actually target degenerate people with gambling problems because first of all, the way they target responsible gaming, let's say for example, on DraftKings, if you decide, if you want to, um, exercise their responsible gaming tools. So let's say you have a gambling problem. So the way their responsible gambling tools on their website work is that you have to a recognize you have a problem, acknowledge you have a problem, and then in their software go to the part where it says where you self-limit yourself. So you log in and say put a limit on how much you can bet. So that's their that's their answer to responsible gaming. That's like telling an alcoholic, well, okay, well, go in a bar and sit there, but if you want to don't want to drink, don't drink. Just tell us you don't want to drink, or or if uh, or just giving them like little thimbles full of alcohol or something like that. And that's not how it works. I mean, gambling. If you have a gambling problem, you've got to just stop gambling. You can't just gamble a little just like alcohol so but then they take the people that are responsible in their gaming 
and who, you know, take the time to handicap and hunt for the best odds and try to win. And, and those people, they target and they say, well, we don't want your, we don't want your business. So if they don't want the business of the people that can win, then all their marketing is targeted for the people who either can't win or can't help themselves. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a tough fight. The only way to truly win that fight is you, you need more people to get on board. Now, I always tweet about it when I can, but the, the only way to really for it to do better is you need people to keep retweeting it and retweeting it and retweeting it and get the views out there. I mean, I've, I've had tweets where, uh, you know, attacks where I've gotten up as high as over 50,000 views, but a lot of times, you know, maybe I only get a thousand to, to five or, or 10,000. So the more retweets you can get, obviously, the more success you'll have. I mean, and another place to attack, too, I try to attack the celebrity endorsers. Uh, on their, Every time I see an endorsement with a celebrity endorser, I tweet at them that they're, you know, they're being used and they're being told they're advertising one thing, but then the company's making a fool of them and doing something else. So I try to always attack those celebrity endorsers whenever I see a tweet from them. But, um, you know, that's, that's the way I try to attack that. You know, I think it's a hypocrisy. I think there's a lot of validity to concerns around hypocrisy here. And at the same time, when I hear you use the word attack, I, I feel like it may be pushed back on me if this is semantics. But even if you are 100% right, if somebody who's in the wrong feels like they're being attacked, that often might not be the most productive path to a positive outcome. So how do you try to position things in a way that might ultimately affect the change that you're, I think, truly pushing for from a place of good intentions? Well, the, the only real way to, to get changes you need, and this is something that I really don't know how to do, you need access to the people with a voice like you need to put together either some type of a, a coalition or you need to get people who you know can maybe get you access to somebody in the um you know maybe in congress or something like that where maybe we could get this up on a, a higher scale i mean one of the things i thought about doing but i haven't done it because it kind of it's not technically not right. It's like, I, I thought about calling gamblers anonymous, the gamblers anonymous helpline and tell them I, I have a gambling problem. And they say, what's your gambling problem? I said, well, I'm a winning gambler, but they won't let me bet. And, <laughs> but I, I just kind of felt like, you know, that service is not really there for, for that, uh, that problem, but it's something I've always wanted to do. But I didn't want to, you know, do that. And then maybe some poor guys, you know, maybe doesn't get put on hold and doesn't take the call or something. So I didn't right. do it. But it's something I really want to do. But um, I haven't done that. Well, when you talk about an impactful way to 
affect change and in teaming up with others and having some sort of coalition. I wonder if there's a bit of a connection here to a, a possible impact that could ultimately come from something like the Sports Gambling Hall of Fame. I'd love to dive into this with you because it is, you know, the the cream of the crop about as illustrious of a group as there could be when it comes to the selection committee and, and especially that um, reputation is only going to grow with future inductees being announced. So if that's as part of the board of directors, I believe you sit on within the Sports Gambling Hall of Fame. How would you describe that experience so far? Uh, well, first of all, um, kudos to Spanky for for the vision to get it started. Um, he had discussed it with me for a while uh, and the thought about it. And, and then he finally said he was going to do it and he did it. And uh, I'm honored that he chose me to considered enough of me to um, offer me a spot on the board. Um, and I know a good portion of the other people on the board or I think are also good, um, you know, people for this, this commission. And, and then as we induct members, those members can become board members. So the, the board will, will grow. And uh, I think it's a, the whole concept of, of it is great. I mean, this will be the inaugural year. The inaugural uh, banquet will be at Bet Bash this year, um, and uh, the star-studded, star-studded cast as far as uh, the uh, inductees for the first round. So, certainly looking forward to it, and an honor to be a part of it. And speaking of a star-studded cast, there are some names. I know Billy Walters and Roxy Roxborough were among the first couple of names to be announced, and I think that's to the surprise of basically nobody. As more names are starting to trickle out, it seems like there are some very deserving candidates, but maybe without as much household recognition, if you will, when it comes to betting circles. So how would you describe your own process vetting different nominees and, and really trying to uncover the virtues of doing your due diligence as a voter on this committee? Well, each um, nominee that we're about to vote on, uh, when the vote comes out, when it, the ballot comes out, there's attachments and links to various articles about the person, uh, videos possibly. So there's a whole bunch of information Plus, even before that, we have a, a chat room for all the board members where we can discuss nominees and stuff like that. So I look at all the information um, that's provided about um, the various people. And then from that, I make a decision. I mean, at this also at this point, being as how we're starting from scratch and there's probably... I mean, we're not. I mean, this is not going to just be like five people in, for the rest of the, you know, existence of the the hall. It's going to grow like any hall of fame. So, um, the, uh, you know, the number of people that are can be nominated. There, there's so many, but the first, you know, the first class. The, they're all the early people. Are likely to have an easier time getting in than you know people down the line further because we're starting from scratch and we're saying all right well who's your who's your top five all time to uh, come up with this list so uh, I, I think and I think we did a pretty good job of um, 
the the group that we got i think it's uh they're certainly all all worthy and uh all deserving and uh it's uh should be should be a fun uh a fun event i'm wondering if you could share an example of, of somebody who although we're talking best of the best here starting from scratch as you've said somebody who's already been announced as being in and perhaps the first time you came across their name maybe it didn't resonate but as you did some of your homework um, you you actually became convinced that this was somebody who was deserving of that first ballot induction. Any examples like that that perhaps come? Yeah, to there's mind? There, one in particular um, is a guy named Charles McNeil, who was one of the uh, uh, we have uh, five uh, inductees that are still alive, and then we have five inductees that are no longer alive, and. McNeil, the, all the talk about him when he came up, and he was known in a lot of circles and as a successful gambler. And back in the day, apparently, when sports betting first started, the instead of the point spread, there was it was all money line. So everything was always a money line, and he's credited with inventing the point spread. Now, when I heard the initial nomination, uh, uh, heard his name, and I said, who's that guy? Because I never heard of him. And somebody said, well, he invented the point spread. I said, he invented the point spread. I mean, it was, that's That was getting invented no matter what happened. I, I mean, that's not, you didn't have to be a rocket. So he, I, I guarantee he wasn't the first person that said, I'll spot you two points in the history of the world. So I'm not, you know, I wasn't sold on he invented the point spread. Uh, but under after further research, more so than he invented the point spread, but he was the one that put the point spread on the map and got books to start using it more. And that's why he, I guess he's given credit. But then down the road, he created the, the teaser now that that's pretty that's that's something that wasn't necessarily inevitable to be created like the point spread so given his that he put the point spread on the map but that he created teasers which is still a popular bet to this day all right I now I could I could see Definitely, he deserved. Plus, on in his own right as well as that, he was also the the word was also a very successful gambler. On top of that, too, so um, so he kind of checked the that box also. I love that example, and that's one more sports gambling Hall of Fame question for you. I feel like this one, if I asked everybody on the committee, I'd get a different answer from each person. But to you, when you're making your voting decisions. What comes to mind when I ask you how you define what constitutes a sports gambling Hall of Famer? Well, for me, it's got to be somebody that, I mean, obviously, they don't have to be known. Well, they have to be known by someone. I mean, there has to be some record or knowledge of just because I never heard of them doesn't mean that they're unheard of. 
So it's got to be somebody that has a track record that's verifiable through people who have, um, you know, been in the business and who are aware. It's got to be somebody who has um, shown honorability, um, you know, not somebody that maybe that might have stiffed people along the way or not paid people or um, to somebody who's always honorable, um, obviously honest um, as far as um, as far as that goes. Um, and, you know, also what kind of contributions they made were, you know, were they a handicapper? Were they, um, were they just good at getting down? Like, for example, just take me as a, as a player. I'm not, I mean, can I do handicapping? Do I know how to do handicapping? Have I done handicapping? Yes. Is that my strong suit? Is that how I make money? I do not make money from handicapping. I don't profess to make money from handicapping. Most of the money I make is from finding value, value in the odds. And, um, and one of my other skills is assisting others who are handicappers, because one thing we know about handicappers is that handicappers are generally not good. But if you take a handicapper and a better, and you give them both the same information, the better is more likely to win than the handicapper because handicappers don't necessarily, they just, they like a game and they bet it. Whereas the, the better will take the information like the game, but then work the numbers and try and get the best edge or find the best way to bet something. So for me, I bring that to the table for various um, players. And so I get the benefit of their information and I help them get down better than they could get for themselves. And then I can benefit from that for myself as well. So, you know, so there's various skills um, that, that people have. Um, obviously, the, you know, the, the real top of the line handicappers for sure that have track records that, um, you know, and I, I joke, I have this running joke about Billy Walters as far as, um, his track record for gambling. And I said on Billy on, I mean, he was known for college football and college basketball. And I told him, told everybody, I tracked his record on college basketball and college football for an entire season. And do you know what his winning percentage was? Man, I, I would guess. 100%. Now, how oh. do I know won 100%? Because every Sunday when the games were over, all the games where the line moved, everybody said, well, that was a Billy game. And every game where all the lines moved and lost, everybody said they were Billy setups. So, therefore, Billy had to be 100% every Saturday. <laughs> I was I was throwing out a serious answer for a moment there with something in the mid to high 50s. But uh, yeah, as the narrative goes, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that the winning percentage of some of the most successful people in this realm is in reality, probably not quite as astronomical as the 
casual observer might guess. No, I mean, if you can go, if you can get to 55%, you're, you're, you're doing phenomenal. Have I seen, um, better? Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, not this basketball season, but the college basketball season before this, the year before was the best college basketball season I've seen in my entire 30 plus years of doing this. And I'm telling you, I mean, I don't chart out what the winning percentage was, but from the source I was getting the games from, they were saying it was in the high 60s, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it had to be close to at least close to 60% because I'm telling you, it was just off the charts ridiculous. Like there was hardly a day we ever lost for an entire season. Um, This year wasn't wasn't quite the quite the same started out good and then kind of after january just kind of chopped the rest of the way but um yeah but if you can just do 55 percent you're i mean and really if you can do 53 or 54 percent you're fine but anybody can hit 55 percent you're you're in an elite status i would say and as we're talking percentages, I've got to follow up and ask you about your comment about not tracking win percentages necessarily on your own end, because I feel like a lot of people listening to this conversation might might have perked up when they heard that. I feel like a lot of the most successful bettors who, who are really savvy and have a lot of excellent experience in this realm would say that bet tracking is one of the foundational components to really making this a sustainable endeavor. So can you clarify what you meant, if I heard correctly, when you said you don't track bet percentages and then how you do go about tracking your bets over time? Well, I see, I don't track bets for a couple of reasons. Number one is I'm not always going to bet the same. I'm not, I don't always bet the same amount on every game. So if you're not betting, every game your winning percentage isn't isn't relevant you're winning you'd have to break you know let's say i was betting i would either bet anywhere from one to five times well if you want to track your winning percentage accurately you have to track your winning percentage when you bet a thousand your winning percentage at two thousand at three thousand at four thousand and five thousand so i don't necessarily track i i track myself by the value i get so in other words, if I find a number that's worth betting, it's always worth betting for the limit. Now, obviously, sometimes that limit is above and beyond what, you know, like, you know, Circa's getting a little out of hand now. For example, Circa says they'll take 100000 on a game. And if Circa's got what I consider to be a great number and it's good for 100000 well, all right, I'm, not, I'm pumping the brakes a little bit. So... But in general, you know, if you've got a place that takes anywhere from two to five thousand uh, uh, in a market where you can get where you can get down, and they've got a, a solid off number, you bet it for the limit, and then you either you know give some away to a friend, and you know maybe get paid back later with some barter down the road. Um, making a friend or something like that. Um, or, you know, worst case, you could even buy some back, which I'm not always, a, I always think you're better off just giving some away and, and banking the future equity as opposed to um, 
trying to middle and just a lot of times give money away. I feel like this conversation, I would love to dig into this topic maybe a bit more in person when we're at Bet Bash 3. Fats, I want to make sure to also get your take on the upcoming Bet Bash descending on Vegas, August 8th through 11th. The Sports Gambling Hall of Fame we've touched on in this conversation will be the capstone event of the conference. And I know you attended Bet Bash 2. What would you say were some of your top takeaways from that event and how that's informing what you're most anticipating this time around? Well, I mean, the highlight of the event was getting a guy who crashed Bet Bash thrown out. But those who follow me know who that guy is and I'm not going to say anything more about him. But uh, that was the highlight, getting him thrown out. I don't think he's going to even dare show up this year. Um, if he does, he'll probably be escorted off the property quite quickly. Um but as far as the event itself, it was the people that you met and the, the contacts that you can make are just um, phenomenal. I mean, out of that bash, I didn't make a lot of contacts. I, I mean, I met a lot of people, talked to a lot of people, but I ended up making, doing stuff with just a few people that I, that I met there. And, uh, you know, you'll meet a few more people, but, you know, when you meet one or two people that leads you to meet other people and, um, you know, something very important. This is, this is one of the best pieces of advice I can give to anybody who's going to try to bet sports for a living. It's not about what you know, and it's not about who you know. It's about what, who you know knows. Are there any examples you can think of in which you've been able to uh, apply that notion in your own career? Or if nothing comes to mind there, how somebody who's hearing this conversation, maybe an up and coming recreational better could try to wrap their heads around a concrete application of that advice. Um, I think, I didn't hear that completely, but I think you're asking me, did I, uh, if I, did I, would I try to like um, cultivate a handicapper or something like that? Was that basically the? Yeah, basically your your own take on on how to more concretely implement that, I, I think, very wise quote that you just shared with us. Um, what does uh, that look like in action to you? Well, I mean, obviously you got to, you got to meet the people that, Obviously, the people that are successful are are the people you want to know, and the successful people you want to know what they know. So it's not necessarily who you can know a lot of people and a lot of people who hate, but you want to know. But what who you know knows is really the important thing. So it's all about the person you know and what they know. I mean. Obviously, but I mean, there's other reasons to be friends. It's not just that, you know, I'm not saying that's the only reason to, to know somebody, but it's just kind of really what it always boils down to. It's, it's what, you know, the more people, you know, that know something, the more lucrative it can be down the road for, you know, various things. And then, you know, things spin in, like I, I give you an example. I, I met a guy, 
there who wanted to do something with a, a, a project. He was trying to take advantage of um, the sign-up bonuses and stuff like that. And he, he approached me about it, and he's kind of interested in it. And I said, well, give me a I exchanged information. Give me a call. I said, I'm not really into all those bonuses and stuff like that, but, you know, I'll see what you have. And he eventually contacted me later, and then I got into a, a situation where, you know, we talked. We never really did anything with that, but then he contacted me again about maybe getting out of that and um, helping get down or something like that. And I said, well, if you can get, you know, a couple of outs where you can bet, then or places that, you know, that I can't bet that you can bet, then obviously that would be helpful. And we did that for a little bit and that worked out and that was fine. And then through him, I met another guy who I got a really, a really good out from. And so you never know how the, the it's going to matric meeting one person can matriculate into um, something else. I appreciate that context because when when you shared the advice of ultimately it's about what who you know knows, I understood conceptually what you were saying, but I was trying to wrap my head around personally how I might apply it. And, and as you gave more context there, it reminded me of people who I've been fortunate to cross paths with. I think of handicappers like Cleve TA or Fabian Summer, who goes by Suma in gambling Twitter circles guys who are so strong when it comes to a lot of qualitative components around NFL matchups. And a lot of their insight has fueled some of my best success over the years, betting point spreads. And aside from betting NFL sides, when I think of props, I mean, I, I naturally am inclined to look at props. It's part of the name of this show. I can think of nobody better than Hitman in that space. So knowing the right people and, and really what their specific areas of expertise are, can really go a long way. I mean, I think of somebody like a Las Vegas Chris, who I've been fortunate to get to know pretty well over the last few years. And he is so sharp. I mean, his contest record speaks for itself, but he thinks outside the box in ways that, that really challenge me. So just knowing different skill sets of different people, to your point, kind of using, using the approach of curating the best of what everybody brings to the table can really help any individual get to a better place without having to reinvent the wheel themselves each step of the way. Well, the, I mean, obviously when you're, you know, knowing what, what's what other people know, you're, you're, you know, you're trying to learn. So part of what you want to take, if you can, what they know, if you can take some of that as a skill to add to your repertoire to help you on your own with something, that's certainly a plus. And the other way to, to know what other people know is you have to make something in your skill set valuable to them mm -hmm. so that they'll want to share that information with you. And it, it's all about building relationships. And it's something I, I have, I called the, I used to call it the, the revolving door theory of gambling. And a lot of times just people that get together and then they, you know, they have disagreements and they, you know, they part ways or whatever. And I always used to say, you know, if you part ways, always part amicably because somewhere down the line, something's going to come up where your skill sets are going to 
come back together and you might be able to do something to help each other. And I always refer to that as the revolving door theory of gambling, because just because you're not getting along and not going to do something with somebody somewhere down the road, an opportunity will come up. And next thing you know, you're, you're back with them. Over the summer, last summer, I was home uh, visiting my mother and she had some found some photographs. Um, I don't know how she ended up with them because they were from in Vegas, but I don't know how they ended up with her. But, oh, I think they were sent to her by my ex-wife or something. I think that's how that worked. But anyway, I looked at the photographs and there was a picture of me and my current partner um, having a beer together or having drinks together like 25 to 30 years ago. And, you know, at that point, there was no foreseeable we were going to we would be together today. And we did at the time we did some business together. And then we didn't do anything for a while. And then something came up and I get back in touch with him. We do something for a stretch and that worked out. And then we'd maybe go our ways and get back. And I, I probably gone back to him maybe three, three, four or five times over time. And now we're back together again. So, um, cause there times come up where we, our skill sets just coincide and it's a it's a it's a good uh, a good arrangement for both of us. I love that example, and I'd like to underscore that is an approach that can apply to just about any walk of life. And in fact, going beyond the sports betting realm, something that might be a bit of a props and hops exclusive, if I'm not mistaken. You have a bit of a poker background as well that hasn't come to light too much in the past. And, and based on your overarching number one piece of advice in sports betting, I wonder how that's played into any aspects in your poker background or, or just how you would kind of contextualize how what you did in poker ultimately played, you know, some sort of role in, in building you into the better that you've become as well. well. Poker, um, the funny thing about poker was I did, uh, I had gotten involved in a project with, uh, my brother where we had written a program for uh, a sports book, you know, the, basically the same, the program that the sports book uses to input their bets and do their figures and stuff like that. And I had gotten involved in a project to do that. And we wrote the program and we were leasing it out to various books. And, um, and then we were approached with, well, could you write one? to play poker online and my brother and I both looked at each other and said, well, that's stupid. Who would do that? <laughs> and so anyway, you know, maybe a year or two later, you know, the online poker thing was kicking off and I still was like, why would anybody want to do that? And then I started playing online poker and, um, not only was it somewhat addictive, but um, after doing it, you realize, well, that's be a lot of work to be coordinating with all these people. There were so many people to actually cheat. If you're not, if you're in a tournament, not in cash games, it's got to be pretty legit. You're not going to be, I mean, in a cash game, I guess you always have to be careful online 
but they have software to determine how many times to look for that certain people are in the same game all the time and stuff like that. So anyway, but I was, so I got into the tournament aspect online and, um, I built up a, um, they had a rate rating system. Like if you cashed in the tournaments, you could go to a certain level. And they had a, a contest that if you won, if you were the a certain month, if you were in the top four, the top four people for the month would get a trip to the Bahamas for their as poker stars for their their very first um, tournament down in. Um, at the Atlantis, wherever that is, I forget which was that Jamaica. I'm not sure, but wherever the Atlantis hotel is in um, the poker stars tournament. So anyway, I finished in the top four. I set my sights on that. I won that. I won that tournament. I go down there and when you're down there, all the people down there were a lot, a lot of the top poker star players that you kind of knew from online. And so you got the, actually meet the personalities and the and the the lobby had the wi-fi so they, they would all be sitting in the lobby playing but they were all like playing with each other but sitting in their computers on the lobby but i got to meet a lot of them and there was one in particular who was a regular you know who's the top of the leaderboard every month and he was from um from holland and uh so I became friends with him and I said, you know, you should come to Vegas and you should probably and just play in Vegas and you could uh, do well with tournaments and stuff like that. So he took my advice, but I mean, there was some kind of miscommunication along the way because I know somewhere along the line, I think he thought I was going to finance him or, or something like that, which I wasn't really, that wasn't really in my plan. So he came in and but I still believed him. So I said, look, I'll, you know, I'm not going to finance you, but I'll lend you some money. Cause you didn't come with a lot of money. I said, I'll spot you some money. I said, so you'll owe me, you know, whatever you play, but I'll put up, I'll put up a third at my own risk and have a third of you. And you have two thirds and you're responsible for, you know, paying me back. And so we did that in the first series of tournaments. It was one of the, it was the Bellagio five diamond um, series. And he, he wins two tournaments. He cashes for like a million dollars that week. So I make a nice score, a couple hundred. So now I'm going to stick with, it. I start traveling around with him going to the tournaments and, you know, taking my same percentage. And, um, and then I started playing more myself and, uh, I was doing okay in some of the tournaments as well. And, uh, there was one we were in, I think San Jose and I think I made the final table and he made the, like the final two tables or something like that. And, uh, so we were doing well. Everything was going good. Um, we get to the World Series of Poker the next year, and I, I cash a, a seven-card studs tournament. Then I 
Then there was a Raz tournament. I finished in third. And uh, the, the stud tournament, I made the final table also. I had made the final table. So I started, I was doing, started doing well myself. But the reason I was doing well was because I finally, after I stopped playing No Limit Hold'em, and I switched to just the, the stud and the Raz and the, the hold, Limit Hold'em, just the, the horse rotation of games. And um, so I did well. And then eventually he got, his ego swelled a little and he liked being uh, hobnobbing with the other like TV celebrity poker guys and his ego got the best of him. And and so we eventually split off and, you know, I had my money. I'm happy. Go do what you want to do. And um, I just did, stayed with what I was doing. And uh, that was my short-lived uh poker career but i mean short-lived and then i eventually i slowed down on the world series events and i found a lot of the side events that were being offered in the other casinos even though their rakes were a little higher they there was you know you could find a almost a mixed tournament either stud or horse or something almost every day so i was playing those which were lower buy-ins with higher rakes but the fields were so bad it was worth it so I was doing that um, for a while, and then of course, eventually, I just I moved out of uh, I moved from Vegas, so I'm in Michigan now. So not much poker anymore. Fair enough. And that's as I gather, there's also not a ton of beer in your day to day life. I would be remiss not to weave in the hops as a pillar of this podcast. My understanding, you're not so much of a beer guy, but you do have a fairly clear philosophy when it comes to drinking. Yeah, I'm not a. I, I mean, I don't. I don't drink soda because I don't like the carbonation. So that always ruled beer out um, for me over the years. But my philosophy, being a heavy guy, has always been: if you're gonna drink, you might as well get drunk. And if you're not gonna get drunk, then you're just consuming extra calories, which clearly I don't need. So I would always just, uh, if it was gonna be a drinking night, it was gonna be a drinking night, and I would. My go-to drink was uh, a Black Russian, which was just all it's just vodka and Kahlua, so it's pure alcohol, and that's what I would usually uh, mm-hmm. usually go with on a designated drinking night. That that sounds like quite the heavy hitter. And if I may, I, I guess my own personal preferences would counter that I do really enjoy the experience and the flavor of a good craft beer, and and sometimes trying to find a way to maybe take off the edge without going too far. So I try to keep a balance of enjoying all good things in moderation to the extent that I can. And that said, I am completely aligned on everybody being entitled to their own approach. And I, I say there's a time and place for every drink and that's got to include something like the black Russian as well. Well, if I believed in, if I believed in moderation, my uh, Twitter handle would be real tiny. (laughs) You might be more in line with uh, my frequency of tweeting, which is uh, probably going to increase a, a decent bit when we get around to the NFL season, but definitely has been in off-season mode. That's one thing that is uh, in full effect year-round, uh, a way for me to weave in another pillar of this show, the Malinsky Minute, as a nod to the late great sports betting legend David Malinsky. I was very fortunate to get to know and even do some work with him over the final few years of his life. And one thing that blew me away about Dave, where I see a bit of a parallel connecting with you, 
Dave was so engaged, even in the comments section of his point blank column that he would write over the years. And he had such a willingness to share advice with anyone just about any time. And to that end, my understanding is that your Twitter DMs are open to anybody. People can reach out at real underscore fats and pretty much get a response anytime they want some pointers in the right direction. So Fats, what would you say drives you to share advice with basically anybody who asks? Well, I mean, most, I haven't had as much lately, but there was a stretch there where people would just DM me out of the, out of the blue and they would, you know, they would start asking me questions and I would do the best I could to, you know, I would ask them a couple follow-up questions, get an idea of, you know, what size player they are, what their goals are, what they're doing, what's their day job. And, and mo you know, my first advice the most is don't quit your day job. And, um, but I would try to steer them in the right direction and give them the, you know, the best advice I could give them. And, and then I, I tell them, I said, and if you have any more questions, always feel free to reach out. I'll be happy to, you know, respond. And I've never not, I've never blocked anybody on Twitter and I've never not responded to a DM I've been sent. You know, where somebody asked me a question and wanted to know something or a piece of advice, and I'm always happy to do it. I mean, sometimes I could be in the middle of something, and it might take a day for me to get back to somebody. But in general, um, you know, I'll get back to them, and I'll, you know, do the best I can to help them. Now, there are some that, you know, I've tried to explain that there isn't much I can do for them. Um but I try to, you know, I, I, I tell them, you know, I'm honest with them. I tell them, you know, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I think your positives and your negatives are. And this is what you have to do. And I give them the best evaluation I can for whatever question they're trying to ask me. I really appreciate that approach, Fats. And I know we have not even started to scrape the surface when it comes to the NFL. I'm thinking if it's all right with you, I would love to welcome you back on for a part two follow-up conversation, maybe digging into a, a lot of your expertise when it comes to the NFL, specifically some thoughts you've shared around key numbers and teasers that I think you know we talked about offline that would be of a lot of value to this audience. Um, so if it's cool, we can wrap this up shortly, but I would certainly love to bring you back on once we're closer to the NFL season kicking off, even probably before the preseason really gets going, um, so that when NFL betting is really top of mind, we can really hit that hard in a follow-up. Does that sound okay? It would be my pleasure. All right. Well, I'll make sure to follow up with you and, and get that on the books. For now, before we wrap up this conversation, I want to be sure to plug your work. Once again, anybody listening can find Fats on Twitter at real underscore Fats. And if you want to meet him in person, show up at Bet Bash 3 in Las Vegas, taking place August 8th to 11th. Fats, I want to thank you for your time and insight today. And I look forward to doing this again with a deep dive, laser focus on the NFL, probably sometime in early August, maybe even before we reconvene at Bet Bash 3. Okay, well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to do it. And Always happy to um, jump on in. Just let me know. All right. Sounds good. We will definitely be doing this again. Um, for now, I also want to thank everybody for watching and listening to this conversation. And I'll catch you next week right back here on Props and Hops.